G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and this is The Truth of It, a weekly newscast on politics and current events from a Christian worldview. And you might ask why? Well, of course, to cut through the fake news and bring you what it says on the tin, which is The Truth of It. Item number one on today's agenda. Well, last night, uh, the Australian Labor Party's national conference wrapped up for another three years. I've just come back from it. I was in Adelaide at the time. And I have to say, wow, what an impressive events. The fact is that uh, the ALP have a formidable campaign machinery, uh, better than I think anyone else in the business. They're focused, they're brilliant, they're professional in that regard at their politics, and we saw that in Victoria with the re-election of the Andrews government. Uh, they have spades of grassroots support, and that was really clearly demonstrated even by what they call the fringe events, which is other groups and, uh, and different uh, community interest bodies coming together and running uh, events all at the fringe of the conference within the venue itself, like big breakout sessions, Labour for Refugees, Rainbow Labour, uh, you know, uh, stuff on gender, uh, stuff on Emily's List and abortion, and all sorts of things were going on uh, around the place. And there was just this feeling of professionalism, momentum and unity, actually, particularly amongst the leadership, which was very clear, like you don't really feel in many places. And so for those of you who don't want to vote Labor, well, the simple fact of the matter is that uh, they're doing very well, um, very well indeed. But see, my key concern is not so much those things. My key concern is what was the key purpose of the conference, which is the ratification of the fine-tuning of their policy platform. It's a 210-page document which they will take to the May election, and that will be the document that guides the priorities of the government going forward if they happen to win in the May election. Now, it's a big document. I'm just going to uh, single out a few issues which I think are key, uh, which are particularly relevant to the work that ACL does. The first one is really concerning. I mentioned Emily's List as I was introducing, and and what that's really all about is pro-abortion stuff. Um, And so the ALP's national platform is committed to pursuing safe and legal access to abortion across the nation. That really has worked its way into Labor's policy manifesto because of this group called Emily's List. Uh, this is an entity which gives money, which gives funding to the political campaigns of women who run for seats in Labor so long as they sign the pledge to make sure that they use their tenure in office to increase uh, uh, pro-abortion legislation and policy and to pursue it in every way possible all around the country. And that group's become extremely influential. I think most women in Labor now at state and federal level would be Emily's listers, so a really strong grouping inside Labor. Very sad and unfortunate. Another really unfortunate aspect of the policy platform is uh, the commitment to what they call the Yogyakarta principles. This is essentially Rainbow Central. Um, It it is uh, all of the genderless birth certificates and ID documents and licenses and things like that, gender-bending stuff all over the place in families and and anti-discrimination laws and and sexual orientation stuff and that kind of thing. I'm going to give a little more on that in just a second, uh, and I'll return to it. But moving on, the third key thing that I thought came up during the course of the uh, three-day conference was the proposal to increase the refugee intake by roughly 4,000 places. Now, here's the thing about the refugee intake, because I think a lot of people don't know. We only actually accept about 6,000 refugees through the humanitarian program every year. It's a very small number. 
Um, we came out giving in principle support to this proposal, subject to key conditions which are really important. But when we did that, one of the unfortunate things was that people just got really mad about it, and they got mad about it on false premises. Um, the first one was, well, you know, infrastructure can't cope with the population growth. This is not where our population growth is coming from. 6,000 people spread across the nation. That's not congesting the bridge that goes over the river to work every morning any more than it was before. Uh, this isn't the source of that. Another one was, well, we're not going to have enough money for our homeless people and we need to look after our own first. Well, the simple truth is it's not that straightforward. Um, we know, surely, that throwing money at issues doesn't actually solve them, especially something as complicated as homelessness. The calculus is not either have 4,000 more refugees or have less homeless people, either have 4,000 more refugees or have less veterans struggling. It's, it's just not like that. Um, we can, in fact, have both because the solutions are not just financial. And, you know, the thing is this, Globally, the crisis of displaced persons is really acute. It's desperate. Um, I went to a session uh, by Labour for Refugees and don't agree with everything that they uh, espoused in that session. But I tell you what, the crisis, the, the, the hopelessness, the desperation that is faced by people who are horrifically persecuted, people who are divested of everything they have, who are destitute, who are living in squalor, who are living in violence, who are living in horrible circumstances in refugee camps around the world. As an act of humanity, we can make a contribution to that dreadful, dreadful crisis. Um, you know, uh, I know that whatever we do is going to be a tiny contribution to a massive issue. But, you know, that contribution, uh, if it is tiny, what we can do is we can make sure that the most persecuted the most desperate come into Australia under that program. Uh, we went out in support of Asya Bibi's claim, uh, seeking asylum recently, uh, and there was great support for that. Well, look, let's make this 4,000 Asya Bibis, or as close as we can get to that. Let's make this Christians, who are the most persecuted people on earth. Let's make this the Amadeans. Let, let's make this groups, minorities, who need it desperately. And as an act of humanity, uh, we should do that. And I'm pleased that the current selection processes around the humanitarian intake are really pretty good. Uh, but, of course, the concern, and this is a concern, is that, you know, the ALP will take a sort of a non-discrimination approach and they will go through the UN channels and they'll bring in a lot of people uh, who may have ideologies that are opposed to our way of life. Um, and uh, the reason that happens is because, actually, some of the most persecuted groups, especially Christians, they don't even go through the UN channels. Uh, they fear persecution and discrimination in camps and so forth, and so they don't go there. And so it requires a government that's pretty switched on to really understand the needs and to try and meet those needs. So those are the conditions that I would have put on this. But in terms of 4,000 more people, it's not a big deal uh, for the Australian economy or anything like that. And it's a good, decent thing to do. Uh, Bill Shorten said we can keep the people smugglers out of business, but we can uh, keep faith with our values on this issue. And I, I would agree with that. The ACL has always been hugely in favour of strong borders because we want to make sure that our humanitarian program can help the most needy. And we also want to make sure people aren't drowning at sea, including children. We also want to make sure people smugglers aren't making a trade. But we do want a generous humanitarian intake. And, you know, generous by definition hurts a bit, but it's not reckless. Um, that's our position. Look, a few other quick things. There was a proposal to increase the foreign aid to 0.5% of gross national income, and they've committed to that. It's currently 0.2% of gross national income, the lowest ever. Again, the issue with that is how do you spend it? 
Um, you know, foreign aid's one of those things that can find its way into all sorts of dodgy areas. Are we going to be funding, for example, uh, family planning in sub-Saharan Africa? Are we going to be sending money to um, um, NGOs which are affiliated with the Pakistani government, writing education curricula, uh, which uh, marginalise and, 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 and paint Christians as, as, as less than human? You know, are we going to be doing these things? Um, the administration of that is is the issue. But, of course, the principle of, of making a generous donation to the most needy, the poor, and increasing their economic status is a good thing. But, again, you know, with so many acts of good come uh, this issue where you've got to exercise wisdom uh, and realise that what seems good needs to be carefully controlled in order that it does good. Um, also, there is um, a push to uh, officially recognise Palestine. Uh, and finally, they were discussing the criminalisation of what they've called LGBT conversion therapy. And I'm going to just drill down on that in just a second. Ah, terrible. Um, I'm going to drill down is what I said I'd come back to, which is the Yogyakarta principles. Um, this essentially is a set of principles which the ALP has now committed to. It's enshrined in their, in their policy platform, uh, which is all gender-bending. For example, Principle 3 from Yogyakarta, it says each person's self-defined sexual orientation and gender identity is integral to their personality and is one of the most basic aspects of self-determination, dignity and freedom. No one shall be forced to undergo medical procedures, including sex reassignment, surgery, sterilization or hormonal therapy, as a requirement for legal recognition of their gender identity. In other words, the law needs to recognize how someone feels in their head about their gender expression. That person shouldn't have to do anything at all in terms of actually get a reassignment or whatever uh, in order to change their gender. It should all be based around how people feel subjectively from time to time. And of course, that's why in Tasmania, laws passed the lower house that say if you mispronoun someone, um, you could be committing hate speech because how they feel in their head at any given time is what must be respected as real across the board. That's in Yogyakarta, um, and that's in the ALP platform. Others, Principle 24, everyone has the right to found a family, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity. Families exist in diverse forms, etc., etc., no discrimination, blah, blah, blah. Um, again, here we have a situation where the government is supposed to say that a family can exist in whatever pattern the most powerful members of that group demand that it ought to be. In other words, uh, if it is, you know, two gay men who want to uh, obtain children from a surrogate in India and call that a family because they've got the power to do it, they're the strongest, they can do it. Forget the kids, forget the right to a mum and dad and biological parents and all the rest of it. Um, and this diverse family forms is something that they are saying must be integrated into the legal system right across the board. Already we're well on the way to that. It's just a, a, one of the key things they want is the legalisation of commercial surrogacy here, the purchasing of women's wombs and trading of children and all sorts of dreadful, inhumane things. Um, principle 31... Everyone has the right to obtain identity documents, including birth certificates, regardless of sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, or sex characteristics. Everyone has the right to change gendered information on such documents, etc. This is the genderless birth certificates. And of course, this creates issues if government records don't record somebody's actual sex. Um, because, you know, what happens for health administration? what happens for um, 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 inve investigation of crimes, things like that. These issues were raised in Tasmania around the genderless birth certificates, but, of course, that law was rammed through anyway. And, you know, after that happened, Bill Shorten was challenged, does he support genderless birth certificates and other government documents, licences and forms and so forth? Um, and he said no. Uh, and yet the ALP just voted two days ago to put it in their platform 
Um, a spokeswoman for Mr Shorten said, we have no plans to make changes to gender on official documentation. But then she turned around and said this in almost the same breath, the ALP's election platform is considered to outline key priorities for Labor over the coming years. Uh, she goes on to say it provides members and supporters in the community with a clear statement of Labor's beliefs, values and program for government. Priorities, program for government. But no, of course he doesn't support it, you know. Uh, I think Senator Louise Pratt was much more honest when she supported the guidelines and said that she hoped a review would be held if the ALP are elected in May. So make of that what you will. The other thing which I want to get out of the ALP conference is the conversion therapy stuff. And I'll finish with this, but this is great news, actually. Um, When we say LGBT conversion therapy, as it appears in their platform, everybody's going, well, what the heck is that? Uh, including the Christian community, because this is a term that was made up by activists. It's not come out of the Christian community. And, you know, as we think about it, we think, well, OK, uh, is, it, is it like that movie Boy Erased, where you've got coercion and abuse and this kind of thing, and you've got uh, electric shock therapy and crazy stuff like that? Uh, is that what they're getting at? Is that what they're trying to make illegal? Um, and I would have thought at first, yes. But it's curious, because that's not happening. It's not happening. There's nowhere in Australia in 2018 where that is happening. You know, Anna Brown, the new CEO of Equality Australia, said that, uh, you know, the practice of conversion therapies is pervasive in religious communities. Now, that's just not true unless they mean by conversion therapy, their term, they mean something quite different to what we think they mean. And, you know, in the former ALP national platform, that became pretty clear. If you read that, you can see there that it targets mere claims that a person's sexual orientation or gender identity can change and says that they should not continue to be made. And then it specifically singles out religious communities. Now, you know, the themes of change and conversion are central to the gospel itself. This isn't a sexual orientation or LGBT thing. This is a Christian thing. This is what you and I believe about ourselves and about the Christian message. Um... And so this could have been an unprecedented attack on Christian belief and teaching. And if you continue to read that old policy, it went on to actually say that where these beliefs and claims exist in the family home, parents will be considered to be domestic and psychological abusers. And that's why we ran all year uh, our parental rights petition and campaign. Now, 60,000 of you signed up to that, which was fantastic. Um, And we have been working so hard with ALP politicians and different groups to have this policy revisited. And the incredible thing is, the wonderful news is that the other day on the floor of the ALP National Conference, those concerns were heard. And that LGBT conversion therapy section was substantially rewritten. Uh, And it no longer targets the claims that mere change is mere claims that change is possible it no longer singles out religious communities it no longer has a clause in there that relates to parents and parents rights and also the proposal for this year was that the practices be criminalized and that also was dropped by a last minute amendment so well done this is what happens when we continue to fight when we continue to take a stand for what's true and what's right. And, you know, the ACL was really the only group that was seriously pushing this in a political context. Uh, And it was a difficult one to push because it's so controversial uh, and everyone misunderstands each other. But look, we've come to this situation where we see that when we speak up, when we speak truth, 
good can still come. So thank you very much for your support on that issue. I want to um, talk a minute for about uh, talk for a minute about the Ruddock Review. You can watch the episode from last week to see my quick analysis of the Ruddock Review and the things that are included in that and what's good and what's bad about it. But you know, since then, it's actually Philip Ruddock himself has come out and he has said um, that there was a great deal of concern about religious discrimination, but it was not on the basis of hard evidence. So he questioned the evidence basis for claiming that there's a religious freedom issue. And if you look at social media, if you look at reporting on this, you'll see that people are constantly saying, look, oh, look, there is no issue of religious freedom. It's all overblown. Well, you know, the review actually acknowledges anti-Semitism. It acknowledges Islamophobia. It gives very little attention to uh, discrimination against Christians. And yet, you know, I sat not three feet from Mr. Ruddock across the table from him during the consultation process around this review. And I read him three pages of case studies from ACL's legal clinic. We've had more than 50 cases of people who have gotten in trouble with the law for living out their faith as Christian believers. And I rifled through a range of examples. I told him about Joshua. I told him about the student at a major Australian university uh, who, on the basis of praying for a friend with her permission, and answering a challenge about his beliefs on homosexuality in which he said he wouldn't necessarily agree with the practice of homosexuality, and it was no more severe than that, he was suspended from the university. Uh, He was told that he'd have to undergo fortnightly counselling classes. That suspension was put on his academic record, and he was told uh, that... um, he was told that he wouldn't be able to return to campus uh, during the period of the suspension, and if he did, he'd be removed by security. Now, that's just blatant religious discrimination. Or I told him about um, a school teacher at a government school who engaged in a Facebook debate prior to the same-sex marriage legislation, sharing articles that supported same-sex marriage and then offering his own contrary opinion, his own critique in a manner that was perfectly reasonable and not, not crazy. But he was insulted by local media. Uh, he had former students go on the radio and attack him and criticise him. And then the education department of the relevant state actually subjected him to disciplinary investigation pending an outcome which could have led to the loss of his job. Uh, there's another case. Or, 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 in fact, the general manager of a digital services agency in Melbourne, who, when the staff became aware of his religious beliefs, they asked him directly in a staff meeting what he thought of the Safe Schools program. And he said, well, personally, I disagree. But then he went on to say, well, this is a diverse workplace where many beliefs are tolerated, and the company doesn't have a belief on this, just as it doesn't have a belief on abortion, because that divides us. Made all those qualifications. He was fired. I kid you not, fired. Summarily dismissed by the board because he'd expressed those beliefs and made an unsafe workplace. Or I could tell you about the medical professional who had an affiliated status with a major Australian university and several professional accreditations. Uh, And she went and she gave a a talk in a school and a church um, on uh, 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 the Christian view of sexuality and and sex, and that's her area of specialty and expertise. Um, And she, she, she gave the scientific basis for everything that she said, but an activist reported her to the university. The university reviewed that, uh, and she needed serious legal representation to, to save that status, but she actually lost the professional accreditation with another body. 
as a result of those complaints. Or I could tell of the Christian couple in Western Australia that were denied the right to become foster parents of children under six because they're committed Christians and they have a traditional view of human sexuality. Or the guy who worked in a big insurance agency in, in Sydney who, who posted on the intranet his opposition to same-sex marriage in response to several who posted their support of same-sex marriage and he did so in reasonable terms and he was told that he'd have to undergo disciplinary action for that. Or I could tell you about the woman who lost her accreditation as a family counselling professional because she gave a talk challenging queer theory or the children's party entertainer you might have read about in Canberra uh, who uh, was sacked from her job because she put an it's okay to vote no frame on her Facebook. Uh, Or you could have read in The Australian recently about Jason Tay, the photographer from Perth, who uh, a lesbian couple asked him to take their pictures. He said, yeah, sure. But he said, in case you want to go somewhere else, I want to disclose uh, the fact that I'm a Christian, just so you know, because I would want to know. And he was being sincere. He didn't want to reject the job. They sued him for the mere statement of his beliefs that he's currently at the State Administrative Tribunal for simply stating his beliefs or white magazine that were handed out of business not because they said anything but because they didn't say anything they just remained silent and activists targeted them I mean, are we convinced yet? Um, I read through these and many more examples in the Ruddock Review and Philip Ruddock himself comes out and says there's little evidence Um, you know, the reason why we couldn't do even better than that actually was because the Ruddock Review was cobbled together in a way that made it impossible Uh, We couldn't provide the full briefs of evidence on these cases because it wasn't actually a parliamentary inquiry. So it didn't attract uh, privilege. So we couldn't make those disclosures and breach the the professional privilege of of the lawyers involved uh, because the review was cobbled together so quickly and wasn't in the usual fashion. But we were able to read these stories. And so don't be fooled when people come out and say there is no religious freedom crisis. Oh, yes, There most definitely is an issue of religious freedom and there are people all around the country who are seriously hurting and and, and have gone through serious difficulties simply because they have lived out their faith. Uh, The final major issue that I want to cover is uh, a bit sad. It relates to the Assistant Minister to the Deputy Prime Minister, which is Andrew Broad. Um, He's resigned his portfolio uh, and he's announced that he's not going to recontest his Victorian seat of Mali at the next federal election in May. Um, And I'm not going to go into the sordid details. It's not very edifying, but it comes on the back of a string of complaints over the last 12 months from women alleging inappropriate conduct from Mr Broad. Now, um, of course, all these things need to be investigated carefully, but they do seem compelling at this stage. Um, You know, Mr Broad's married with a child. He identifies himself as a Christian man. He's outspoken on that. He argued strongly in favour of traditional marriage in recent times. Um, He actually tweeted during the Barnaby Joyce saga a quote from the late Billy Graham where he said, um, uh, when wealth is lost, nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. When character is lost, all is lost. Um, It's a wonderful quote and it's so true. Um, But now this. Uh, And, you know, perhaps what I'll just do in response rather than comment further on some of those details, I want to read something that I wrote a few months ago, when I was fairly new in the role, when the Barnaby Joyce saga took place, I wrote a piece on Joyce. Because Barnaby Joyce had said, oh, well, it's a public-private divide. This is my private life. Well, actually, this is a matter of character. So whether private or public, it matters. I wrote, the truth is, the private-public divide doesn't exist when it comes to matters of character. 
If a man is not faithful to his family, one might well ask whether he's faithful at all, to country, to God, to friends, to office, to truth. As a question of character, see, it permeates a person's whole life and all that they do. That is the nature of character and virtue. They are things which bear on our very mode of life. They qualify us at the most basic level for anything we set our hand to. Likewise, their absence disqualifies us from so much. Hypocrisy is a terrible vice in itself, but more importantly, nobody listens to a hypocrite, and it's hard to blame them. When Isaiah was commissioned by God to be a prophet in Isaiah 6, his character flaws were first exposed and dealt with before anything was said or done in the pursuit of his work. Before that, Isaiah wasn't ready for his task. At ACL's recent staff retreat, we worked through a devotional series on the Sermon on the Mount. And it struck me that we so often consider our work at ACL in light of Christ's call to be salt and light in the world and to do good works before others, that they might see them and glorify God. That's Matthew 5, 13 to 16. All of these are, in a major sense, public matters. But nobody teaches by throwing out a list of random, unconnected statements. Jesus was no different. The order in which he said things and the connections between them are important. And before Jesus said a word about publicly manifesting our faith in word and deed, he first taught us about character. The public face of that salt, light and good works is backed by character that is poor in spirit, meek, righteous, pure in heart, peacemaking and merciful. That's Matthew 5, 1 to 9, the preceding verses. Stories like this, Joyce Broad, should make us examine ourselves. God calls us to be leaders where it counts in our character. He calls us to do so in our communities, our families, our work, wherever he has placed us. And maybe for some that includes politics. As people cry out for leaders of conviction and moral fibre who don't merely virtue signal but are in fact virtuous, I'm left asking whether some of us will heed the call as Isaiah did long ago. You know, God said to him after he purged his sin and his guilt and he dealt with his mouth and all of that kind of thing, he dealt with a character. God said, who shall I send? Who will go for us? He was looking for a leader of character. And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And you know, as Christian believers, that's a duty that uniquely falls to each of us, to lead where it counts. Because we have this law of God written on our hearts. We have the spirit of God dwelling within us who should give us the strength to be able to do that. You know, this is my last episode uh, before Christmas, and I'm mindful that um, so much of what gets covered is dark and messy, and it reminds us that this world is a place that ever since the fall groans under the weight of darkness. Um, But you know, Christmas reminds us that light has shone in darkness. My favorite verses, some of my very favorite verses of Scripture are found in Isaiah 9, and it says exactly that. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amazing verses that tell us what's happened at Christmas. And I unpack the incredible meaning of those scriptures in my Christmas blog. And I encourage you to read it 
and trust that it speaks to you this Christmas season. It's online at acl.org.au. Latest articles. It'll be one of the top two. It's called We Have Seen a Great Light. Um, But for now, I want to say God bless you. I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you particularly for your support of ACL. Um, I've been in the job nearly a year since February, and we are going from strength to strength, and it's because people like you have given, have volunteered, have prayed, have done so much to build this movement so that we can make a stand for truth in the public square. Happy Christmas.